Find please if you have your copy of Scripture, and if you don't, there's um, a copy in the, uh, in the back of the pew in front of you. We're going to look at uh, Colossians, the letter that God inspired the missionary Paul to write to, to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. It's about, oh, fifth, fifth, five, six of the way through your copy of Scripture, uh, chapter 4. We'll read that in a few minutes. Uh, let me please invite, let me invite you please to be here tonight. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to host our friends from First Missionary Baptist over on Blue Spring Road. This is our first time to, to host them with their new pastor. Dr. Darius Butler is a wonderful uh, man, and uh, this will be his first time to preach in this pulpit. Uh, we uh, twice a year get together with our friends there, and um, this is the night, 6.30, little unusual uh, time for us, but 6.30, and then we have a great time of fellowship afterwards, so let's be good hosts and hostesses and uh, all be here tonight at 6.30. There's been a topic, uh, there's been a story in the news uh, this week from uh, out of Dallas, something that happened last uh, Sunday when uh, the Cowboys played the Packers and the Packers beat the Cowboys, go Packers, and they, um, but the big story is not about the Packers beating the Cowboys. It's about who was sitting together in um, Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones is the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. It's about the, who was sitting together in Jerry Jones' VIP suite, the, the box. Former President George W. Bush was there with his wife, and alongside George W. Bush sat Ellen DeGeneres and her wife. And there was a lot of talk about that. Now, I'm quite sure that um, President Bush, former President Bush, got a lot of crit criticism for that, for there are a lot of people uh, who don't like Ellen DeGeneres. You might remember that a lot of people have referred to Ellen DeGeneres. By the way, you, you know that, of course, President Bush is politically conservative and has, holds a traditional view of marriage and sexuality. And Ellen DeGeneres is liberal politically and, and is gay. And so lots of people jumped in on this. I'm sure that there were people who uh, criticized President Bush. There are people who uh, call her Ellen Degenerate because of her lifestyle. You know that. And but what made the headlines were uh, the number of people who so terribly, uh, nastily uh, criticized uh, Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, the tweets were apparently um, just awful. Uh, a lot of people criticized her for sitting next to uh, this person who has political view, uh, politically conservative views and a traditional view on marriage and sexuality. She. She spoke on Monday about that. She has a show, and a daytime show, and she talked about that. And uh, Ellen DeGeneres said, when I say be kind to one another, I don't mean be kind to the people who think the same way you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Movie stars like Reese Witherspoon and Kristen Bell came out to support and encourage Ellen DeGeneres, and they too were attacked and criticized deeply and broadly and nastily for coming to her defense. We are in, uh, I'm 60 years old, we are in the most uh, deeply divided, um, meanest, most malicious, uh, nasty time in our culture that I have known. And, um, and I wonder if uh, one day America's going to get tired of that. 
I wonder if one day uh, Americans will say, you know, that just wasn't much fun. There was one tweet uh, from uh, someone uh, that said, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. So here's one person who says, you know, if Ellen DeGeneres and George Bush can sit together at a Cowboys game, then maybe there's hope for America. I wonder if Americans ever are going to get tired of the meanness and the nastiness uh, that, is so, that so much characterizes our, uh, our cultural and political debate nowadays. If they do, I wonder if people will look back and say Christians were part of the solution or part of the problem. Let me be a little more specific. Instead of speaking generically about Christians, I wonder if people who know you and me in our circles will look back and say, you know, he or she was part of the problem or he or she was part of the solution. Which brings us to our text. If you have your uh, Bible open, let's read from this letter to the church at Colossae, chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Writing to, to us, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, and outsiders would almost certainly mean those outside the circle of the church with a capital C. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Seasoned with salt, and by the way, uh, New Testament scholars, commentators are not sure what Paul means by seasoned with salt. There is a consensus that he probably means be creative and interesting in your conversations, which I, think, I find fascinating that he would say, if you're talking to outsiders, at least don't be boring, be interesting, be, be creative. I know he wasn't talking to preachers. He was talking to, uh, to everybody, everybody else. Verse 5 again, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What we're going to concentrate, as you already have guessed, we're going to concentrate on that first phrase in verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace. Let me be careful here not to overly sweeten uh, this phrase, or this, uh, yeah, this phrase, this, this text. I'm not going to suggest this morning that we should be silent because people might disagree with us. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that we not have hard conversations. Sometimes hard conversations are necessary. But I do want to say as clearly as I can that the, Bible's, the Bible tells us that if in my attempt to address a topic, even something I consider to be sin, if I address that in any way less than gracefully, then my sin is just as significant as the sin I'm trying to address. Let your conversation Always be full of grace. Let me apply that to three particulars. Number one, let your conversation be graceful when we disagree with someone over political, moral, and social issues. When we disagree with someone over political, moral, and social issues, let your conversation be graceful. Now, let me say that Christians have uh, a, an image problem that we can't, uh, we can't do anything about. For example, I mean, just specific examples. 
When I say that I am pro-life, and I am, people make assumptions about me. Well, he's a bigot. Uh, he's backward. He doesn't care about the rights of others. I can't help that. I can't control that. I can't fix that, and I ain't going to lose any sleep over that. But now if I am a bigot, and if I don't care about the rights of others, then that's on me. When I say I believe Christmas is true, that, that Jesus is the incarnation, the enfleshment of God himself, and therefore is the way to God, then people make assumptions about me, that I'm intolerant, that I'm narrow-minded. I can't fix that. I can't help that. I can't control that, and I ain't going to lose any sleep over that. But if I am intolerant, small-minded, narrow-minded, well, then that's on, that's on me. There's some things we can't control, and we're not responsible for those. We are, though, responsible uh, for our conversations, and are they, full of, are they full of grace? So how do we respond? When we do have differences on you know, Facebook, holiday co- holidays are coming. Whether it's office parties or family gatherings, you're going to sit across from people who have different views on political, moral, and social issues. How do you respond in the office place or at work or in the neighborhood or at the fitness center when those people want to debate you and when they want to kind of goad you because they know who you are and they want to goad you into a, a position? When, when they're pushing you on a political, moral, or social issue, how do we respond? I, I have four questions that I, I'm going to suggest that I think will help us. Number one, do I know the whole story? On a political, moral, or social issue, do I know the whole story? And let me go out on a limb and suggest that if your only source of news is one solitary TV station, I don't care if it's Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or something else, if your only source of news is a news channel, I'm going to suggest that you and I don't know the whole story. You know a slant to the story, you know an angle to the story, you know part of the story, but if my source of news is only one news channel, I don't know the whole story. And so when I weigh in, if I only have that source, when I weigh in, can I be real candid? When I weigh in, I display my ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't mean stupidity, I mean lack of informedness, if that's a word. So do I know the whole, do I have enough to, do I have enough information? Do I know enough to really weigh in on this or do I only know part of the story? Um, number two, is it going to make a difference? Is me weighing in on this going to make a difference? Now, if you just have a friend who, that you like to debate with, and I have a friend like that who's more liberal politically and, and socially than I am. He lives in Kentucky. We get together about twice a year. And when we do, we debate and, and we, we we, we love the stimulation of the, of the debate. And I win most of the times when we, when we do that. But we just have a friendly debate and we're not mad. We, you know, we, we're smiling when we're through. But if I just want to spar with somebody, that may make for good theater. But am I really going to make a difference here? That's the second. First one, do I know the whole story? Two, will it make a difference? Three, is this really uh, an issue I want to weigh in on with the torrent of issues nowadays? Is this really one I want to weigh in? Because if I weigh in, if I weigh in on every issue, then every time I weigh in on an issue, people roll their eyes and they say, ah, oh, there goes Travis again. Do I really want to 
Weigh in on this one. Four, what, maybe most importantly, what is the tone and tenor of my conversation? I'm not suggesting we, we withdraw from the arena of public debate. I hope you hear me. I'm not suggesting that, that you and I withdraw from the arena of public debate. I am suggesting that we have to ask what is the tone of my conversation? Not just what am I saying, but how am I, I saying it? Do I know the whole story? Is it, is it really going to make a difference? Is this really something I want to weigh in on? And, and what is the tone of what I'm saying? When we're having conversations with people who disagree with us over political, moral, and social issues, I, I, we must be graceful. Second, what about people who have failed or fallen? What about people who have messed up? What is our tone and tenor toward, uh, toward then? On May the 27th, 2019, some five years ago, uh, it was a big day. Number one, I turned 60, but it was also a big day in the sports world because a famous sports figure died at age 69, Bill Buckner, a famous baseball player who spent most of his years in Boston with the Boston Red Sox, who was uh, an all-star, who had a really great hitting career, but who's known for one moment in the 1986 World Series. He was playing with the Red Sox, and the Red Sox had not won a World Series since 1918, and in the, the season, at, or the, in the year following the 1918 season, they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, and they thought, well, it's just the curse of the Bambino. You've heard that. They thought we should never have traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees. So it had been all these decades, they hadn't won a World Series. This was game six of the World Series, 1986, and uh, the Red Sox were ahead three games to two. It was a close game, it had gone into extra innings. It was the 10th inning of the sixth game of the World Series. They were tied, bottom of the 10th inning. So all they had to do, there were two outs, bottom of the 10th. All they had to do was get one more out and then go in, maybe they could get a hit. If they win tonight, if they win this game, they win the World Series. Mookie Wilson was at bat for the New York Mets, and um, it was, the count was three and two, three balls, two strikes. One more strike, one more out. The Red Sox get to go in and bat. Maybe they get a hit and win. Mookie Wilson had several foul balls. He was up there, it seemed like, forever at bat. And then he hit what the commentator called a, a, little, a little roller down to first. It wasn't hit hard. Bill Buckner was the first baseman for the Boston Red Sox. He casually bent over to, to scoop up the ball, but didn't bend over far enough, and the ball went under his glove. And There was a runner on second. The Mets scored. Mets won game six, went ahead to win game seven. The Red Sox had lost the World Series again, and the fans were ruthless. The sports writers were nasty and cruel and mean. There were death threats on Bill, toward Bill Buckner. That one play of the whole out of all the at-bats and all the fieldings and all the stuff that went on, Red Sox fan blamed Bill Buckner for losing the World Series. It was awful. In the middle of the next season, they traded him. He left, went to the California Angels. When he retired a couple of years later, he moved to Idaho as far from Boston to bat as you could get. 
22 years passed. 22 years. 2008. The Red Sox organization invited Bill Buckner back to Fenway Park. And before the first pitch, the announcer at Fenway said, won't you please welcome him back to Boston, 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 and let him know he is welcome always. Number six, Bill Buckner. Red Sox fans gave him a two-minute standing ovation. The next morning, the Boston Herald's headline on the sports section read, All is Forgiven. God bless the Red Sox fan. it took some fans. It took them only 22 years to invite him back and forgive him. Has it, has it been long enough, don't you think, that person who let you down, who hurt you, who betrayed you, who fell, who failed? Hasn't it been long enough to say, all is forgiven? There's a beautiful story in Genesis 33 of two brothers, Jacob and Esau, the most well-known, maybe, one of the most well-known betrayals in all of Scripture was when Esau was betrayed by his little brother Jacob. When Esau d deserved the birthright, and Jacob, with the help of his mother, betrayed Esau. And it, years have passed. Years have passed. They've become successful men, both of them, with lots of cattle and servants. And their journeys <clears throat> have taken to the place in Genesis 32 where they're about to meet. Genesis 32 says that, Esau, that Jacob's servants, like the, the scouts, came back and said, boss, tomorrow we're going to meet Esau. And G Genesis 32 says that Jacob was afraid and distressed. Because remember, Esau was a big burly guy. Jacob, not so much. The next day they did meet, and when Esau reached for Jacob, I, the Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine Jacob it, wincing a bit. And Esau, a big burly guy, grabbed his little brother and hugged him like a little brother that he hadn't seen in years. And when the embrace broke and Jacob stepped back, Genesis 33 says that Jacob said to his older brother, looking at you, is like looking into the face of God. You will never look more like God than when you say, enough time has passed. This is enough. All is forgiven. How's our conversation toward people who need our forgiveness? When it comes to the public debate, the arena of public debate, public, you know, political, moral, social issues. Let's be graceful when it comes to people who failed and fallen. Let's be graceful. And then what about people who are not yet Christians? The Bible says be graceful toward the outsiders. So what about those outside the circle of the church? There's an old Jewish legend about Abraham that says one day Abraham was near his tent when an old traveler, an elderly traveler came by and 
being good, a good Middle Easterner and, and very hospitable, Abraham invited the, the elderly traveler into his tent and gave him, offered him something to eat. But this elderly traveler, when given this food, just dug in and started to eat. And Abraham said, whoa, wait a minute. Are you not going to thank Jehovah for your food? Oh, the man said, I don't, I don't worship Jehovah. I, I worship only fire. And Abraham was so mad, he took his food away and threw him out of his tent. A few minutes later, the Lord asked Abraham, Abraham, where is your guest? Abraham answered with righteous indignation, Lord, he does not worship you, and I threw him out. And the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, I've been patient with him for 80 years. Could you not have been patient with him for a night? Throwing people who are not yet Christians out of the tent is not going to help. Dismissing people, breaking relationships. I have a hunch that there are more people who are loved into the family of God than there are those who are shamed into the family of God. We'll say that again. I have a hunch that there are more people who are loved into the family of God than there are who are shamed into the family of God. How are our relationships and conversations with people who are not yet followers of Jesus? I wonder if maybe there would be more followers of Jesus if those of us who do follow him were more graceful. How's our conversation with people with whom we differ over political, moral, and Social issues, how is our conversation with people who've failed and fallen, you know, who let us down? How's our conversation with people who are outside the circle? Are we more likely to love them in or to shame them in? Jesus, you know, was called a friend of sinners, and, and they must have thought that was an insult, but I believe Jesus wore that like a badge of honor, and it bothers me, quite frankly, that aren't, there aren't more of us who are called uh, friends of sinners, I think that would be a great thing if people were to criticize us for being friends of sinners. How's our, how's our conversation? Um, most people need a friend more than they need a prophet. There's time to, there are times to be prophetic. There are times to say, it's a duck, it's not a rabbit, it's a, you know, it's a duck. I mean, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, I mean, it's a duck, right? I mean, but most people need a friend more than they need a prophet. Take, for example, foul-mouthed Phyllis over in the finance department. You know, foul-mouthed Phyllis, she, her, her language is just atrocious. And it's offensive. But what you don't know is that foul-mouthed Phyllis's marriage ran off the rails a few weeks ago, and she's, she's being offensive because, quite frankly, she's trying to build a, this wall around her so that nobody sees what's going on. She's so ashamed of her home life that she's, she just wants to keep everybody at a distance. Foul-mouthed. Now, now, the boss may have to say, Phyllis, we can't have that talk in the church office. I mean, in the office. We can't, we can't have that. <laughs> I'm going to hear about that one tomorrow. <laughs> Phyllis, we can't have that talk in here. But you know, from you, Phyllis probably needs a friend more than she needs 
a prophet. And then there's Billy the bully in your biology class. You know, Billy's a bully because all Billy ever sees at home is his mom and dad yelling at each other. They haven't had a good marriage since Billy's been around, and all Billy knows is fighting. Now, you know, the teacher may have to say, Billy, you're a bully, and we can't have that. But from you as a fellow student, Billy may need a friend more than a prophet. And then there's Nancy, your nosy neighbor. You know, she's always up in your business, Nancy is. But Nancy's, Nancy's not nosy. Nancy's lonely. Nancy has so few friends that she overfunctions. Now, you may have to say, you may have to have a hard conversation with Nancy and say, hey, Nancy, you know, I appreciate um, your interest, but, you know, let, but Nancy needs a, she needs a friend more than she needs a prophet. And then there's condescending Carl in your Kiwanis club. You know, condescending Carl. Carl has such strong political views, and he always wants to talk about him, and he wants to go you because he knows you go to church. He, what, do you, what do you church folks think about that? He's always goading you and always patronizing and always like he knows more than you do. Well, what you don't know is that, is that uh, Carl's really struggling uh, with alcohol, and he doesn't want you to know that, so he, he comes across as a know-it-all because he doesn't know exactly how to deal with the fact that part of his life is out of control. So at, at Kiwanis Club, he's always the know-it-all. If you're the president of the Kiwanis Club, you may have to say, hey, Carl, look, let's, could we check our politics at the door? But from you, my hunch is Carl needs a friend more than he needs a prophet. <clears throat> I was pastor at First Baptist Church of Mount Washington, Kentucky, and it was a Friday afternoon. I was headed north on 31E to go into Louisville uh, to, um, to visit the hospitals. But I didn't make it. I was the second person to arrive at a terrible automobile accident. The steam from the uh, radiators was still rising. I was the second car to arrive. Uh, um, I got out and ran to the car that was, looked, looked like it was headed northbound. Another gentleman had already gotten out and run to the car that looked like it was headed, south, headed southbound. And when I got to the, to the car and opened the door, there was two, two elderly ladies. The one on the right side, the passenger side, had been thrown into the floorboard. Uh, I'm guessing her face had hit the, the, the dash. Uh, it was already just... A few seconds, literally, after the impact, um, already swelling such that I couldn't have recognized her. The driver, dazed, was kind of coming out of it, and she said, Ruby, are you okay? And I looked at her, and I said, Ruby, is that, is that you? It was. It was Ruby Mitchell, a member of the church I served. Ruby was trying to get back in the seat. I helped her back into the seat. I looked over at the other car, and uh, the man who had stopped for the first car had gone to the driver's side, and he just shook his head at me. Found out in the news story, I didn't know at that, at that moment, I found out in the news story, it was a young couple engaged to be married the next day. He died on the eve of his marriage 
couple of hours before the wedding rehearsal. I made an assessment of things. It looked like to me that um, these two ladies were at fault. It looked like they had veered over into the southbound lane. In fact, that's what happened. So I gave them a good talking to. I said, uh, ladies, what you've done is terrible. You've, you've veered out of your lane. And, and the, the results have been catastrophic. You, I didn't do that. There's a place to talk about highway safety. It's not at the accident scene. I called an ambulance, helped helped get them into the ambulance and, and tried to comfort them until the door had closed. There's a time to have hard conversations. Please understand me. But there's a time to be gracious. And even when we're having those hard conversations, there's a way to be gracious. Whether it's people we differ with on politics and morals and social issues or people who failed us or, or people who are outside the circle. Let's Let's make sure our conversations are always full of grace. Rooted in grace that is greater than all our sin, 586 is the number of the hymn we're going to sing. And we sing this uh, so that you will come. 586, not every, uh, not every Sunday, but just about every Sunday, whether it's in first service or this service, somebody will come and Say they want to be part of our church or want to Thank be baptized. Thank you for worshiping with us today at Huntsville's First Baptist Church. Would come if you'd we be pray that your faith in God has grown through this service. And we invite you to join us in are. person us at 600 to, Governor's Drive we'll be in down here to help you. Each Sunday, Answer First Fellowship offers a worship experience beginning at 8.15 in the Life Center with music led by praise bands and a message delivered by our ministers. Bible study for all ages begins at 9.15 on Sunday and is followed by our sanctuary worship service at 10.30. 